Well, good morning, Aldergrove. It is great to see you today. Welcome to all of you who did not go away for the long weekend. Sadly, we're the people that didn't have anywhere else to be. I'm joking. This is a great place to be on a Sunday morning. If you are new here, I just want to say welcome. This is what it looks like all the time. We're this kind of this hype church that does all these great things. Uh, no, we are really excited for camp starting tomorrow. Yes, camp. Go camp. Uh, in case you don't know me, my name is Kevin, and I am the pastor of our Aldergrove campus for North Langley Community Church. And uh, if you are new or just checking out church or Jesus or you are, are new to this particular congregation, just want to say welcome here. This is a great place to be on Sunday morning. And whether or not you've been here since day one or you've been going to church your whole life or this is, this is maybe your first time in a church, I just pray that you experience a tangible expression of God's love today. That's my prayer for today. And I'm excited that the kids are, I think some of them stayed, maybe one or two. Uh, a movie is a hard thing to compete with, and Ashley made it sound like now I have to be really funny. Um, we'll see how that goes. Um, but today I think we're actually in for something special, because today we're going to be looking at really maybe the greatest parable that Jesus ever told. Uh, that this parable so eloquently and beautifully describes the good news of Jesus, really in probably its most pure form. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is sometimes referred to as the gospel within the gospel. And so what we're looking at today is something that really is very beautiful. We're going to be looking at, at uh, a story of a lost sheep, then a lost coin, and a lost son. But the parable, the, the one of the three of those that I want to look at the closest today is the parable of the prodigal son. We are going to hear the prodigal son over two Sundays. So this week, we're going to be looking at the, the younger son, also known as the prodigal son. Next week, we're taking a break for camp. Uh, we're taking a, a step out of Luke for, for a week because we're going to have dancing and hype. and, and, and so There's going to be lots of great stuff here. Um, and it's going to be, but then in two weeks from now, uh, Eric, who is our middle school director from our Walnut Grove campus, is going to be here. And he's going to be speaking on part two of the prodigal son story, which is the older son. And really, the older son is kind of what wraps all of Luke chapter 15 together. So I really encourage you to be here on July 16th for that because that's going to be a great one. One thing that we're going to learn, however, is through today, as well as when Eric speaks in two weeks, is that the prodigal son is actually a horrible name for this parable. This parable would be much better labeled or titled the prodigal father, or maybe the loving father, or the running father, maybe the listening father. But it's really important for us to know as we study the parable of the prodigal son is that this parable really isn't about the prodigal son. This parable is about his father. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Enough of us have heard this story, but like most of us have heard this parable before. Uh, Dr. Daryl Johnson says that this parable is so deep and so beautiful and so scandalous that someday we might even really believe what Jesus is teaching us. That's how radical and unbelievable and beautiful this parable really is. As a side note, uh, Dr. Daryl Johnson is a, was a professor at Regent in Vancouver and is currently a, a preaching pastor with The Way, uh, a church in Vancouver. And I listened to a couple of his sermons as part of my preparation for this week, and they really impacted me. And I found them very beautiful and moving. And so basically, if you hear me say anything awesome today, 
Chances are it's not Kevin. It's actually Kevin speaking something that Daryl said. And so I just want to kind of give Daryl credit for, uh, for a lot of the great things that, that I learned this week. Okay, before we get into the story of the prodigal son, I want to share how this chapter opens, because it's actually really important to know who this parable is directed to for it to make sense. So in the very beginning, in, in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around Jesus, gathering around to hear Jesus. So sinners and tax collectors are coming. People who are not the good religious people are all hanging around with Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, now a lot of translations will say uh, the Pharisees and scribes, so I'm just going to refer to them as scribes today. But the, the Pharisees and scribes muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus tells these next three parables as a response to those Pharisees and scribes, them muttering about what Jesus is doing by hanging out with sinners. So this is a story that is actually directed towards the religious elite. If you've been hanging out at church for a long time, chances are this is you. Chances are that this is me. People who followed the rules, who are good at looking like you know what you're doing when you come to church, you know when to sit and when to stand, you know the words of the songs. But he spoke this parable, these parables, not to the crowds of sinners and tax collectors that were coming, but to the scribes and the Pharisees who had been following the rules for a long time. And in their eyes, in the eyes of the scribes and Pharisees, holiness comes from legalistically following all the rules. Does that sound like church sometimes? Following Jesus now? Is it sometimes that we make it just about following the rules? And in their minds, Jesus was actually shaming, that Jesus was shaming the reputation of Israel's holy God. Why? Because of the company that he keeps. Because of these tax collectors and sinners and, and their shameful inability to follow the law or their complete disregard for following the law. And those are the people that Jesus is hanging out with. And as a rabbi, by association, they believe that he is shamefully representing God and the law. So they mutter and they criticize and they look down on and they judge not just the sinners and tax collectors, but Jesus for spending time with them. Because they don't think that Jesus is taking the law seriously at all. Donald Jewell says that God's law is threatened by actions that suggest that God is not serious about the law. So these scribes and Pharisees, they're very serious about the law. And so anything that Jesus is doing that looks like it could be breaking that law, they just are like they're disregarding Jesus now. They're no longer listening to him. So Jesus tells this parable to justify his behavior that the scribes and the Pharisees judge to be scandalous that they judge to be shameful. It was believed that by being set apart from sin and from sinners, like being separated from the bad stuff, that's how you make yourself holy. So Jesus hanging out with these sinners and tax collectors, the marginalized, the people of disrepute, meant that they were messy and they were not doing a good job of following the rules. And so the Pharisees and scribes look at Jesus and they're like scandalous, shameful, Shame on you, Jesus, for spending time with these people that are so openly not following the law. Shame on you. So Jesus responds to this criticism and rebuke, and he answers the scribes and the Pharisees with this parable, with these parables that are incredibly scandalous. So I want to read the parable of the prodigal son, focusing on the younger son. In verse 11 of Luke 15, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. 
The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him in the fields to feed the pigs. Oh, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But well, he was still a long way off. His father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead as alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Father God, I pray that as we look at this parable of Jesus, as we explore the parable of the prodigal father, Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts to experience your love today in a new way. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's actually look at this. So it starts off in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So that would have been basically the son saying what to his father? I wish you were dead. I wish you would just hurry up and die already because I want what's coming to me. This would have been completely selfish and immature. It's incredibly disrespectful and shameful, especially in a Middle Eastern patriarchal society. So um, he divided the property between him. And just so you know, in this case, it would have meant that one-third of the father's estate would go to the son. In this culture, the, the oldest would receive what is called a double blessing. Any oldest children in here? You would get twice as much as your siblings. Does that sound good? Yeah. I'm the youngest, so no. Um, do not like that plan. So it would have been that, that the son gets a third of his father's estate. And so it says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. He liquidates it. It says in verse 13, not long after. So very quickly, he has to sell it all. One third of everything. He sells a third of the land. And there's new neighbors moving in what used to be next door, but now is actually your front yard. New neighbors are moving in. He sells a third of all the possessions. And what started off as maybe a fair market sale with the people in the community quickly turns into a fire sale because this is a community that was family-focused and people would have loathed the son for what he was doing. He was bringing shame on himself and his family. Some scholars believe that the reason why he did this quickly was because the community would have not just criticized and condemned him but likely wanted to beat and scold and just destroy him as a person. 
for being such a horrible son. Everyone in the town knew what was happening, and they're all looking down with shame on the son. But here's the craziest part of the story. Craziest part of the story is that the father does it. Dad, you're here today. Can I have a third of everything? No, he would say. That's what he would say, because we don't give a third. We don't divide our estate. That's not how it works. But the father does it. That is crazy. That is scandalous. The the son literally breaks his father's heart, and his father lets him go. His son breaks his father's heart, and he doesn't yell. He doesn't even try and convince him to stay. He doesn't beat him like the culture would have suggested at the time. He just lets him go and doesn't disown him. He just releases him. And he accepts, the father accepts all the shame that would have come with new neighbors moving into what used to be his front yard with the land that was recently sold, with the ridicule that would have come from people in the community that that made a profit over his son liquidating a third of his possessions. He accepts all of that heartbreak and the shame and the mockery that would have come from the people that he saw in the town square, from the elders and from the community. The father is actually behaving scandalously because he listens to his son. No father in his right mind would do this, or so the religious leaders thought. Okay, let's continue in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a local citizen of that country who sent him in the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Okay, the first little part there in verse 14. After he had spent everything, five quick words, he wastes a third of of the father's estate. He wastes through his inheritance a great sum of money in no time at all, and he's completely irresponsible and reckless. And then a famine comes. Uh, People have said, thank the Lord that this son was horrible with spending his money. Because if he, he was good with his money, when the famine came, he might have been okay and he would have never come home. I think that's a cool insight. Thank you, Lord, that the famine came and that the son was awful with money management. Thank you, Lord. And so he hires himself out to a local. This would have been a non-Jewish Gentile who probably didn't even want to hire him. The word that is used is that the son attached himself to this man, and more likely than anything out of pity, he gives him the lowest possible job with the lowest possible pay in hopes that the son would just leave. So he gives him the job of feeding pigs, not a livable wage, not even enough to feed himself, where the food that the pigs were eating looked appetizing. Have you ever seen pigs eat? Pigs are disgusting. They eat the things that no one else wants to eat. They eat the food that other animals don't want to eat. That's what pigs eat, and even this became appetizing to the sun. So it says in verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am. I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him. Okay, before we see what he says, he comes to his senses. What does this mean? It just means that he remembers. He remembers the goodness of his father. He remembers the love of his father. He remembers how the father behaved towards even his servants. So he makes the choice to come home and face the glares and comments of the neighbors and a community to face the older brother and face his father who he once wished dead. So he practices a speech and it has three parts. Have you ever done something awful and then when you have to tell someone about it, you prepare a speech ahead of time? 
I remember once on Christmas morning, I was driving and it was snowy and my dad had a new truck and I was driving to Christina's house and, uh, and I drove into the ditch on Christmas morning in my dad's new truck and I had to hitchhike to get to Christina's place. It was before cell phones. That's how old I was. Um, and, uh, and I got there and I remember having to call my dad and I remember I practiced that speech for a long time. Dad, your truck is in the ditch. And I don't remember how he responded, but I remember the terror of knowing that I was going to initiate that conversation. And I rehearsed it as I was waiting, as I was waiting for someone to come pick me up and get the truck out of the ditch. But the son's speech has three parts to it. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your servants. So there's three parts. I have sinned. He's recognizing his sin and that, there, uh, that he's brought shame on the Father. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy. He understands that sin has consequences and caused real brokenness in their relationship. And then he says, make me like one of your servants. This is his attempt to make up for what he's done and pay off his debt. And so he rehearses it. I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy. Make me like one of your servants. I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy. Make me like one of your servants. And he would have practiced this speech a hundred times on his way home. Okay, let's remember really quick who this story is for. It's for who again? Who's it directed to? The scribes and the Pharisees. Yes, this is a story about the Father, and Jesus is directing it to the scribes and to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees think, and the scribes, that that you have to do enough good works to become righteous. That, That through careful obedience to the law, you make yourself righteous. So at this point, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like, okay, what is going to happen next? What is this scandalous father going to do? What kind of behavior is he going to respond with? Is he going to beat his son? Is he going to disown him? How will he make him grovel? So the son got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is a part of the story that reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Finding Nemo. Um, you guys remember Marlin swimming after? Like, this, is, this is what it makes me think of. That entire movie is a father chasing after his son. A father running swimming uh, after his son. And in this case, this is the father running. He was, he was scandalously waiting for the son to come home because it says, well, he was still a far way off. He saw him. And so this is a scandalous picture that Jesus is painting of a holy God. Because do you think in a Middle Eastern first century culture that the patriarch ran? No, that was beneath him for someone of his stature. It was scandalous for him to go running to his son and not waiting for the son to come groveling to him. It was scandalous because he meets his son while he was a far way off. And most scholars believe that what that means is that he knew that the townspeople wanted to condemn and to beat and to judge and to bring shame and scorn on the son. So he runs while the son is still a far way off to protect him from what people are going to do to him. He knows what the son's about to face and he longs to protect him. And it's scandalous because he has compassion on his son and is compelled towards a child who had humiliated him. So the son gives his rehearsed three-part speech. So the son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The father lets him speak this confession. He lets him confess his sin, and the father lets us confess our sin. And then the son said to him, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
He lets him get these words out because he understands the damaging effects of his sins and that his sin has real consequences and his broken relationship. The Father lets us speak that. But what about the third part? He starts off with, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But what happens right here is amazing is that the Father cuts him off. He doesn't let him finish his pre-planned speech. He interrupts the son. The son gets out the part where he acknowledges his sin. And he, he gets out the part where he, he says that there are consequences for the sin. But when he says, I am no longer worthy to be your son, the Father's like, no way, stop it. Let me stop you right there. No more. I don't care what you're about to say next, but you're not saying it. Unworthy to be called my son? There's no way. There's no way you are unworthy to be called your son. That's as far as I'm letting you go. I don't care what was coming next, but I'm not going to let you speak that in my presence. The third part is where the son is supposed to ask to be made like a hired servant where he makes up for the wrongs that he has done. Daryl Johnson says, the father interrupts the son's speech with his own speech, and that, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. That you are a son. You are a daughter. You are accepted. You are not like a hired servant. You are a child. I won't even let you speak those words that you are like a servant. You can't make up for it or pay it back. You can't do something like that. You, you don't make up for it or pay it back. You can't simply because you are. How scandalous this would have been for the scribes and Pharisees to hear that you don't earn your place in the family of God, that it is a gift, and that being a child is something you are and not something that you do. Being accepted because of careful obedience to the laws and rules was, is, is not how it works. In fact, your, your sonship, your daughtership is bestowed upon you because you are your father's child. Wow! Do you see how scandalous this would have been for the people that Jesus is speaking to? He's turning their world upside down. Or better yet, he's turning their worlds right side up. Right? That this is the gospel, this is the good news, that you and me and the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners, that we are all dearly loved, cherished children of a king who loves us unconditionally, of a father who says that there is nothing that you have done or can do or well do that will ever separate you from my love. Romans 8 says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else, nothing. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is good news. It's good news for the scribes. It's good news for the Pharisees, though very hard for them to accept. But we can't earn God's love. God says, I'm not going to let you even try and make up for what you've done. You don't even get to try. You don't make yourself through right. You don't make yourself righteous. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that he makes us righteous. We don't earn God's favor. He simply delights in you as a father delights in his children. I need you to know today, if you take nothing else from this sermon, just know that God delights in you. That there is nothing that you have done, there is nothing that you are doing that can separate you from God's love for you. 
Okay, let's keep going. So the father interrupts the son's speech, and he says, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Who gets the best robe in a family like this? It's the father. The father says, get my robe and cover his stink and his dirt and his filth with my righteousness. Take my robe and cover him and protect him from the scorn and the shame and from all the the ill will that people want to bring on my son. Cover him with myself. Bring the best robe, put it on. Put a ring on his finger. This part is crazy because this would have been the signet ring. The signet ring is what would have been used to like stamp official documents and was actually saying, put the son in charge of the household. Give him control of the finances. This is a bad idea, according to the scribes and Pharisees. But what Jesus is doing is he is restoring and reestablishing his son as a rightful member of his family. He's saying that this is my son. And he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. The fattened calf is reserved for only the most special guests, the most honored people. And you would kill the fattened calf that, that was being saved for such a special guest. And it was such an honor to have the fattened calf killed. And so all of this... All of this is is the father returning his son to a place of honor and authority and importance in their family. And again, to the Pharisees and scribes listening, this is ridiculous. It is scandalous. It's even shameful. By covering him with his robe, by kissing his face, by killing the fattened calf, restoring and reestablishing this son is telling the community and the leaders and the older brother that whatever you think about the son, whatever you do to the son, you are in fact doing to me. He is actually taking all of the shame and the sin of the son and he is putting it on himself. He's saying, because whatever you do to the son, you are doing to me. So he is taking all of that shame and sin away from his son and putting it on himself. So wayward sons and tax collectors and sinners being accepted and loved and put in places of authority and honored and welcomed into the family of God, not because they did something to make up for their sin, simply because they came home. That's all it takes. Just come home. I love this story. Isn't this a good story? I love this story. I have a a friend named Monica who's going to share a unique version of her own story of the prodigal son. Uh, She's going to share part of her story. And before she does, uh, is today's story about the son? No. Who's today's story about? The father. Today's story is about the father. So when Monica shares, she's not sharing her daughter's story. She's going to share her own story. And I think it's a current and beautiful example about what we're talking about today. So let's welcome Monica. Monica shared part of her story at a women's coffee time a couple weeks ago, and she let me read the story, and when when she did, I was moved, and I thought, this is such a beautiful example of the father's heart for the son in this story, and a great example of a parent's unconditional love for their child. So thank you for being willing to share. Thank you, Monica. Um, My daughter knows I'm here, and she's given me permission to share my story, so just so you guys know. Uh, When I became a a mom, I never thought about the difficult times ahead. I always thought I could survive the toddler years or the teenage years, the rest would be smooth sailing. I'm the mother of four adult children. I made it through those toddler and teen years and began to think that life was good. All four were involved in different ministries in the church and they had their solid Christian friends and their faith. But life isn't always the way we imagine it will be. 
there are roadblocks, sharp corners, and drop-offs that we can't predict or plan for. For me, that happened 12 years ago. The hows and the whys are not my story to tell, but as in all things, there are ripple effects that spread out and affect others. I could only watch as my daughter started making decisions that would take her down a long, slippery slope. For the last six years, she has been deep in a life of addiction. As one thing on top of another was heaped upon her, I also felt like I was under the weight of those attacks. It was like I was being pushed underwater and I couldn't find which way was up. When I finally surfaced, I was only able to gulp in a breath or two before being pulled under once again. I struggled to be happy for friends and family as they celebrated promotions, graduations, weddings, babies, anything that showed that life was moving forward for them. Although my other kids were moving ahead in life and enjoying life, I felt like I was sitting on the sidelines watching as the merry-go-round of life spun round and round. I couldn't see myself getting back on. Besides, the space I vacated was already filled up and I didn't see a spot for me to fit back in. Things kept getting worse as the years went by. My daughter's also diabetic and combined with her life choices, she was left in some vulnerable, life-threatening situations. At one point, she was on life support and I thought for sure this would be her wake-up call but she continued on her downward spiral. As her mom, I would be the one to get those phone calls that no parent wants, cries for help that was actually just a selfish cry for a current desire, not a cry for real help. When COVID hit us in 2020, she was without a job. She had no car, no phone, and no Wi-Fi. The only way I could contact her was through Messenger, and I would have to wait days for her to have free Wi-Fi from somewhere before getting a response. I could drive there, but I knew I didn't want to see how she was physically doing. My heart became more and more anxious thinking of what she was going through. I kept my faith throughout these years, but there was a time that I gave up on hope. It hurt too much to have all my hopes crushed over and over again. But a time came when I realized that I needed hope to work alongside my faith. I couldn't give up faith, so hope had to be picked up again. I cried out to God to take away my mother's heart because it hurt too much to see how she was choosing to live. But God didn't take away the pain of loving her. He also didn't take away my desire to always be available because one day she would need me to help her get back the life she left behind. In January of this year, I felt a change within me. There was a peace that I hadn't felt in years. I began to hope that this was the year. I was challenged to fast for my daughter. I chose to give up something that would give me an uninterrupted time once a week. I used that time to pray, to cry, to listen. God allowed me to vent and to plead, and I felt God's presence and his peace. I don't know how long the father watched and waited. I've been waiting 12 years. Did the father know where his son was and what he was doing? I know where she was, and I have a good idea of what she's been doing. I don't know which would be easier, the knowing or the not knowing. These last six weeks, my daughter has been making some big decisions in her life, and she's making progress in recovery. She is still far from God, but I can see her in the distance. She is returning. And I know that the God who began a good work in her will bring it to completion, Philippians 1.6. Sharing with you today is me running towards her while she's still far away. It's my faith in action. Thank you so much, Monica. (laughs) 
What a beautiful example of a parent's heart unconditionally loving their child. And I need you to know today that you are loved unconditionally. No matter how far you've gone, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, that you are loved and accepted and you have a father who longs for you to come home, whose desire is for you and not against you. Luke chapter 15 starts off with a story of a sheep who wandered off and became lost. And the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and searches high and low for the one sheep. And when he finds it, he picks it up and puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home. And when the sheep is home safely, the shepherd throws a party. He throws a party and celebrates with his friends because what was lost has been found. And in verse 7 it says, I tell you that, that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And then there's the story of a lost coin, a woman. First of all, a woman in a patriarchal culture. I love that Jesus is always elevating women. And here a woman represents God. A woman searches her home carefully, looking for the missing coin. And when she finds it, there's a party with her friends and neighbors. And she says, rejoice with me. And Jesus says in verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels. There's rejoicing with the angels and God in heaven together over one sinner who repents. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son represent the sinners and the tax collectors and the marginalized and the forgotten. It represents you and me when we've wandered away, when we've done the things that we're shameful of and that we would hate for anyone to ever see. It represents you and me when we've wandered far away and when we've ignored God. And the thing is, is that Jesus is saying there is good news. N.T. Wright says that the three parables in Luke 15 are told because Jesus was making a habit of having celebration parties with all the wrong people. And some people thought that that was a nightmare. These three stories have a way of saying, this is why we're celebrating. Wouldn't you have a party if it was you? How could we not? In and through them, we get a wide open window on what Jesus thought he was doing and perhaps what we ourselves should be doing. Sometimes I know I'm more like the scribes and the Pharisees than I want to admit, and I try and make my faith about earning something or deserving something or being good enough. Sometimes grace and freedom that come with the good news of Jesus seem backwards to me. Some days it's actually hard for me to wrap my head around. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So my question for us this morning is, what is your view of God? Is your view of God this angry, condemning, judgmental God who's just waiting for you to slip up? Who, when he sees you, sees all your past mistakes and judges you for them? Is the God that you think about in your mind a God who runs to you? Is it a God who loves you unconditionally, regardless of anything, regardless of anything that you have done? Well, he was still a long way off. His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Ephesians 3 says, And I pray... This is my prayer for us, that, that us being rooted and established in love may have the power together with all of God's holy people to grasp. This is what the prodigal son, the prodigal father story is about, is how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. 
Our takeaway for today is what do you think of God? Do you think of God as a vengeful, angry, disappointed in you, or dissatisfied in you, God? Or is he a scandalous father? Is he a loving father, a listening father, a running father? Remember that this is a parable not about the son, but about the father. David Garland says that salvation and repentance have now changed places. For Jesus' audience of Pharisees, repentance is the first thing, the condition on which affords the sinner the hope of grace. It is now the case that repentance comes by means of grace. For Jesus, grace is the first thing, and repentance comes as a response to grace. I'd like to invite the worship team up now, and we're going to move into a time of communion. Communion is an action we do to remember the scandalous love that Christ has shown us. It's a reminder of the remarkable story of God's love through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. For today, how, the question might be, how can you know that the Father is running to you? And I'd like to say you can know because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. That is Jesus running towards you. This is a new agreement that has been made with humanity and God where we can be given new life with Christ and where we can approach the throne of God, our Father, and be welcomed as children. Typically, we invite people to participate in communion who are like the prodigal son, who have wandered away and recognize our need for a loving Father. If that's you, you're invited to participate with us in communion today. If you're unsure about communion or don't fully understand it, don't feel obligated to participate. You can just stay where you are, and that's totally fine. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today we remember what Christ has done for us, and we proclaim that he is a God who covers us with his robe. He is a Father who runs to us and covers us with his righteousness covers up all the stain, all the stink, all the filth, all the pigsty mess, and he covers it with his own robe, and he restores us to a place of sonship and daughtership within the family. So I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'll, I'll ask you to take the elements and bring them back to your seat, and then after this next song, we'll all take communion together. If mobility or carrying the elements is difficult for you, you can just stay where you're seated, and I'll be coming by with the elements, and you can just put your hand up, and, I, I, and I'll bring some of the elements to people that, that it's a little more difficult to come to the front. So let's pray, and then we'll worship and take communion. So Lord, thank you for the cup. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for the bread and your body that was broken for us. As we celebrate communion today, Lord, take pleasure in your people and help us to know the Father's heart for us. In Jesus' name.